Hello, everyone. Welcome to McKinsey's Discussions in Digital podcast, hashtag digital dinner. This is our series that brings together different voices here in Silicon Valley to explore interesting issues emerging in today's digital world. Uh, today, we're going to explore the topic of the future of strategy in a hyper-growth digital world. I'm Brian Gregg. I'm a partner here in McKinsey's San Francisco office where I lead our digital consumer marketing practice. And I'm thrilled to be joined tonight by three esteemed panelists. We have John Weinberg joining us here, the head of strategy at Sephora. We have Jacques Pomerad, the SVP and general manager of cloud services at Salesforce, as well as a former strategist himself. And Diane Esber, who co-leads our consumer marketing initiative at McKinsey. Excited about the conversation, everyone. Thanks for joining me tonight. So John, is there still a role for a three-year vision or are we in a place where things are changing enough, six months, 12 months, that the vision has got to, it sort of doesn't serve the same purpose as it used to? I think there's a role for a three-year vision in any company, um, in, in any phase, because um, you still need to have that North Star that you're, that you're shooting for. But I think, um, as opposed to in the past when you could say that strategy was an annual process where executives got together. That just doesn't work anymore because of how many things are changing so rapidly in the digital space over the course of that cycle. It has to be imbued throughout the year um, in other moments, whether formal moments through offsites and otherwise, or through you know uh, executive team meetings on a periodic basis, which um, unfortunately uh, frequently get bogged down in the day-to-day -day mundane workings of the business. And you have to one of the new roles of strategy is elevating that out and making sure that you're bringing strategic dialogue into each of those interactions on hopefully a at least a monthly basis, but at a minimum quarterly, given how things can change so rapidly. Two-speed strategy, Diane, is there, you, you serve a lot of large and smaller sized startup-like companies, is there, is this something you've seen at work in practice, or is this a nice thing on paper, but? If you think about what we're talking about today, which is sometimes smaller, more nimble, agile companies not always seeing the need for this three-year vision, but how do we actually get those larger companies to move from the annual planning to the twice a year to move a little bit more quickly? And I think part of the struggle in large organizations is also communicating out that vision to the rest of the org. So as you get bigger and broader, at least in my experience, proliferating the vision to the rest of the company, whether it be geographic expansion or store openings, if that's changing too rapidly, it's almost hard to get everyone else aligned into which way the ship's moving, and that becomes harder and harder the larger you get. So can you really have two-speed strategy and quick clips when you're quite a large company? My view is that the role of the strategist, first and foremost, is the mobilizer. People need to understand where the company is going and take their autonomous decisions. And so the main value of a strategist is to be able to understand his vision in three years, mobilize the organization around this vision and what people have to do to get there, and then management has to empower flexibility, reactivity in each of the business to adapt to current events, essentially. So I'm glad you used the word mobilizer because McKinsey actually published some research um, a few years back on the elements or characteristics of the strategy department and what is the role of the strategist. And mobilize, oh, mobilization was one of them. There was also the concept of architecture, architecting, uh, the roadmap, the visionary, and even the fund manager, if you think about resource allocation. And I'm wondering, John, you, you've spent time in smaller companies like at Pete's Coffee, running the strategy arm, and then now at Sephora, a larger 
still high growth place. Does the role of the strategist change as you go from different sizes and scopes? And I think the footprint is actually quite similar and I actually agree that if you have a two-speed strategy, um, then at the highest vision level, if you make it too broad, it's not going to resonate with anyone. And so uh, I think a lot of the role becomes making it crisp enough so it resonates with the organization and gives that kind of guidance to the organization while still giving the ability to make those pivots over the course of, of time without whipping the organization, like you said, whipping it, saying the vision keeps changing. So what you're communicating, the umbrella is actually quite consistent, but yeah. the inner workings underneath are pivoting yeah. all the time. Yeah, you're constantly prioritizing at the much lower level as long as they're within the consistent framework that you've set. The way to manage a company has changed a lot in the last couple of decades, right? From top down, the leader knows it all, <laughs> let's execute, yeah. to a um, more federated model, right? Where you expect empowered teams to make the right choice and just follow the general direction. Nimble teams, Agile, yeah. they all know what they have to do, right. and so it's even more important to have a strategy team that is clear and that allows those um, that federation of little teams to understand exactly what they have to do and not refer up the chain every time. It's, it's actually the analogy that I would use also is um, just coming from retail is there's the there's two two real philosophies to having a customer service model. One is the principle principles based and the other is the rules based and the migration has been from rules based to principles based. Once you know the framework, you can make the decisions to the lowest level to reprioritize because you can't have the C-suite constantly reprioritizing every dollar. So for example at Salesforce what matters First and foremost is um, what we call trust, customer trust. Then it's customer success. And so once it's clear, everybody can make the smart choice at their level without having to refer all the ways to, uh, to management. And um, one of the exercises that uh, we use, it's uh, actually a great uh, management tool, it's called the V2MOM, right? It's a vision, values, methods, obstacles, and metrics. Okay that summarize the management method. So uh, every year, actually twice a year, uh, there's a memo that uh, takes a long cr time to craft and that explains what's the vision for the company, what are the values that matter, and what are the methods. For example, trust, customer success, etc., etc. how we measure it, and that cascades. So you see this memo from your CEO, and every N-1 writes another memo of course, for the area, and it goes down all the way to every single employee. And of course, it's in a system, so you can measure it real time. You can you can actually access anybody in the company's V2Mom anytime you want. And so, the result of that is everybody is absolutely clear on where we're going. You want to know what your boss's boss has a top five priority? Sure, you go on the system, you see the top five priority written right there. So it helps you make the right decision. I'm wondering. And Diane and John, your experiences, any good experiences where the strategy sort of trickled down to those kinds of what could be seen as minute but important cultural details? Facebook is an interesting example. Um, so if I think about Cheryl for a moment, because um, she's shared this publicly, there's the what, which is a lot of the strategy piece we've talked about, but then there's a lot of the how. How do we enable the organization to effectively execute that strategy? And so what they've done with the how is take snippets of what they would be concerned with and really proliferate them. So I'll take one, which is having difficult conversations. How do you actually enable a culture where you're saying, what's the difficult conversation you've had this week? 
and it actually starts to be, become okay to say, I need to have a difficult conversation with you. And little cultural changes like that, if you can start to identify them and proliferate that through the culture, um, then it makes the what come alive. And it's something as simple as decision rules, right? Especially going back to this idea of cross-functional collaboration, is if, if the decision rules aren't clear in that kind of world, then it breaks down very, very quickly. Uh, I think that's a clear role of strategy to jump in, identify that, facilitate it. Another thing that we're working on at Sephora is, in, in a rapid expansion phase, you spend so much time thinking about how are you going to continue to fuel that growth. And so you're spending disproportionate time and resources on innovative ideas, uh, client-centric ideas, you know, delight the customer. And then sometimes what takes the back seat is how do you support it? Um, and how do you build the infrastructure? How do you build the behaviors in order to make sure that you can actually scale with the business? And so strategy is taking a role in making sure that we can support that growth going forward. A lot of organizations are either planting a flag in Silicon Valley and saying, I've got to be here in order to attract the right talent, whether it's digital talent, analytics talent. Is there a role of strategy to help shape what is the external value proposition for talent? Or is that still the domain of human resources and recruiting? Jacques, what do you think? I think it's the role of the company leadership. And it's part of shaping the culture in a way that attracts talent. You don't have to be a high-tech company to need, at some point, data scientists. You don't need to be a tech company to need uh, you know, people who understand um, the impact of VR or 3D printing. Even a, very classic manufacturing company will benefit from that and has to. So there's a role of, uh, of um, the strategies to bring to the attention of the management the kind of talents they will need going forward. Recently, I was, uh, I was with a uh, really awesome company that is automating the way code is being developed. Uh, think about Uber that puts together drivers and passengers and applied it to code. So any company, GE, Sephora needs some app developed, some code. Instead of going to their traditional players, they would you know, figure out which awesome coder is available right now today to develop a bucket of code. So complete disruption of the business. Marketplace of service. Exactly. So the interesting thing is I think things like machine learning, like analytics, will play a huge role in the future. But there are small human tweaks that make an enormous difference when you start to apply things like this. So let's just take a simple Google example, which uses machine learning to figure out which ads to serve at the top. Right, the simple dial of explore or exploit will completely change your experience, right? Exploit will show you ads that they've served in the past and they know for certainty work. Explore will insert new ads that they've never tested before to see how they work. Right? Exploit will be guaranteed results, and so you can either always keep going back to what's worked in the past, but you'll never see the next big thing. Yeah. Right? Explore will potentially find you the next big thing or fail. How you change those dials and how quickly you do that and how aggressively you do that has a huge effect. So the machine itself cannot tell you where to go. It just gives you helpful information along the way. The uh, short-term aspect, the place of strategy where it's almost close to tactics, that's where uh, machine learning, um, all those new technologies will have the, the, the most massive effect. That's how you get the opportunity. So uh, example, right, in a um, long time ago, I helped a uh, uh, consumer electronics company with their uh, service business. By using real-time analytics, you're able to anticipate what products have defects, 
or low customer satisfaction way before you get the usual returns from your supply chain, etc. And you can take actions right away in your stores. So that's, the, that's tactics, it's execution, but it is really the speed that you need to, uh, to use to interact. So John, he's just asking a comment on that one. I mean, in a world of beauty where it's a highly social, YouTube-driven space, well, how is that information data being used in your world? The first thing is uh, determining which data we want to collect versus which data we don't need to collect quite yet because there's only so much, there's only so much that we can process and there's only so much that we want to process, whether it's social or whether it's in-store activity. But uh, in the retail world right now, consumers are, or clients and consumers are, are expecting a more personal relationship with, their, with uh, the brands that they're, that they're interacting with. And in order to do that requires data. Right? And some of that can be facilitated by machine learning, but I would never outsource it to machine learning because um, one mistake by the machine can be colossally problematic in a world of social media where it gets amplified, um, especially with brands that have engagement levels like Sephora. And so we're doing, we're doing a lot of work on, on this, um, uh, on figuring out how we use uh, all of this data to be able to personalize our relationships with consumers in stores and, and digitally. It's easier to do that digitally, obviously, um, but there's some magic also when it can be in a store experience. Um, so it's a journey. So here's a fun one. I was listening to a digital leader recently at a large uh, healthcare business not too long ago, and she said that execution is the new strategy. And she went on to explain that, like, you know, given that things change so quickly, long-term strategies essentially lost its purpose in the world where we need to act now. I think this is too simple, and this is how you can make mistakes. Okay. I think. Uh, Every organization, especially nowadays, has a propensity to focus on the short term because it feels good, it feels like execution, it feels like getting things done. And also you get overpassed by competitors, you miss disruptions. So what I like to use is a, actually a framework um, that uh, we use a lot at Salesforce by um, uh, Jeffrey Moore. You may, you may know this one, it's a very simple uh, two by two matrix in which you have four uh, zones. You have um, uh, what we call the efficiency zone. That's where you put essentially um, all your uh, you know, non-core activities that you need to make really efficient, SGNA, support, etc. You have your performance zone, which is your core business. That's 80% of what you do. And that's all about execution. So then I would agree with uh, the comment earlier execute in whatever is in that quarter. But then you need to never forget the two other quadrants. The uh, uh, innovation zone, that's your, 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 your lab, that's your test, right? And never have more than uh, you know, one or two, right? A uh, few things you want to try. New business, new products, and then uh, you have your transformation zone. And that's why you put also one or two things that in two years will become performance zone. But every company needs to nurture those four quad quadrants at the same time and not focus on just one. Otherwise, you lose, you miss the train. All right, Jacques, take us to the world of tech. Who, who do you look to as a strategist navigating waters, choppy waters consistently? Well, I would say two things. One that will surprise you. Okay. So the one that is uh, almost obvious is Amazon completely disrupted the retail industry. Sure. But not only uh, with the vision of uh, supply chain that led to this massive success, but also with the ability to innovate 
and give some freedom. So that's the, the birth of uh, AWS. Amazon Web Service, which is now completely there, amazing company. But now the one that may surprise you is I would say institutions are the ones that surprise me. And by institutions, I mean a company like Siemens. Siemens is more than a century old. And Siemens used to be what you know, the machines, the phones, manufacturing and so on. Nowadays, what is Siemens? It's a really high-tech medical instruments with uh, uh, big data, uh, providing um, preventative maintenance. Siemens, it's uh, Siemens Energy with, again, uh, data lakes that analyze real-time the data from the wind turbines and provide a flow of uh, information to uh, prevent and drastically reduce the cost. It's turbines, it is a, a business that has been evolved to evolve as a massive conglomerate through wars, through crises, yeah. through everything, and still standing and strong. And in fact, they were able to constantly innovate, right? So really, really good example. But I think very few make that kind of a pivot. There are very few that pivot enough that they can actually um, work their way out of a dying industry into an entirely different different category. Well, using, using, using a specific capability they've built up in that other. Siemens is a great example around that because it's portfolio business, right? Mm -hmm. So portfolio businesses do a lot better with that. When it's a single category company and the category just shifts, then I think it's unusual for companies to figure that out. Sometimes like, companies just make the right decision at the right time. Like Amazon Web Services, honestly, um, is your perspective that Amazon Web Services was a strategic decision by Amazon well before it became Amazon Web Services? Or did it evolve and then someone finally figured out, you know, this is something that we could actually, it's the one thing we can actually make money on? Yeah. Like, well, how did that evolve? So, so I, I, don't, I don't work there, right? So I only have an outsiding perspective, but my understanding is that the strategy is let's be super efficient with our use of capital and let's not have uh, CapEx standing there not utilized. We have capacity that's been built for Black Fridays and so on. What can we do? And then, so that was the macro strategy. And then empowerment, so that some people said, hey, why don't we monetize the data center while we don't need it for the core business? Yeah. And that was the strategy. The, it was never, let's start a cloud business. Your question, John, was is it a proactive determination to go penetrate and I think what Jacques is saying is there's a fab, there's, as long as you architect a scaffolding that enables those bottoms up things it's, to happen. It's the mobilizer. It's the mobilizer. And to recognize them and capitalize on them. Right, exactly. It's almost more powerful than having the roadmap. Diane, what is the ultimate investment for value creation in the next three years? I think finding the balance of what we were talking about earlier with the human curation of data, so who are the right people that have the skills to mine this, with the right tools, and I see very few companies find the right balance. Either they're over-investing in tool after tool after tool after tool that don't work with each other, don't really give them what they need, or a, an army of people that in 10 years' time won't be as valuable, and finding, I think, the right balance between those uh, will be pretty important. So John, you can give us a retail sense of pulse on this. I don't think there's anything different between a, the, a, from a retailer to a technology company. It's the same thing on data. Um, personalizing your marketing, personalizing your messaging, personalizing the experience that consumers are having in your stores, getting them closer to that micro-segmentation um, so that you can get that value. And that's true in B2B, whether you're Salesforce, it's true whether you're B2C um, in, a, in a retailer. 
you know, retailing, it gets harder and harder as digital and dot-com penetrates the market, rise of Amazon, everything else. And so the experience matters a lot more in a retail environment. But that's longer than a three-year time frame. Data science, understanding your individual customer, um, is in opposition with a sense of privacy and anonymity, right? So um, I think every company has to really manage that balance and not go uh, faster than they should, just be ready, uh, because mentalities evolve. But right now, if you go too far, you actually can lose as well, right? I, agree. I call it the thin, creepy line. Yeah, exactly, exactly, well done. But that line moves every year. And one of the tricks is having a pulse on the client which going back is one of the true roles of strategy going forward, um, not just as technologies evolve, but as, as, um, as client segments evolve pretty rapidly, uh, because the workforce at the senior level is very different from the consumer base in cutting edge retailers. So you have to keep a pulse on it. I want to thank you all again tonight, Jacques, Diane, John, you've been wonderful. Thank you for joining me for McKinsey's Discussions in Digital. And for our listeners, please tweet us your ideas for our next podcast, hashtag digital dinner. Who do you want to hear from and what do you want to hear about? Let us know. And to learn more about what we're publishing, just check out our site, McKinsey Digital and McKinsey on Marketing and Sales. Thanks again, everyone. Good night.